Hello, this month Andy got to interview David Tucker, who is the person who directed every single episode of A Very Peculiar Practice. David came to television directing via a circuitous route. After a degree in history from Cambridge, he became a secondary school teacher and also started to take part in amateur theatre, where he got a taste for what he really wanted to do in life. After studying drama and theatre art at Leeds University, he taught drama at Further Education College before securing a job at age 23 as a trainee floor manager at Granada Television. He went on to become an Arts Council-funded trainee director at the Library Theatre in Manchester. From there, he moved on to the Royal Shakespeare Company, where he worked with Peter Brook, the Liverpool Playhouse and the Bristol Old Vic. After securing a place on the BBC's three-month directing course, his first TV directing role was on two episodes of Wendy Craig's series Nanny. He could not believe his luck when, for only his second TV directing job, he landed the first half of Tenko Series 2, which involved challenging filming in Malaysia. R.F. Delderfield's Diana followed in 1984, and a few years later, an adaptation of the Miss Marple murder mystery Nemesis with Joan Hickson. Directing all of the episodes in two series of a very peculiar practice took up a sizeable chunk of his time in the late 1980s. Some of his 90s work includes The Gravy Train, Stanley and the Women, A Year in Provence and Bramwell. In the noughties, he directed Born and Bred, several Midsummer Murders, The Last Detective, on which he was reunited with Peter Davison, and D.L. and Pasco. In more recent years, he has directed the short film Burn the Clock with Gorn Granger and Gemma Jones, and helmed numerous episodes of EastEnders, Casualty and Holby City. Andy talked to David last month, just as he was about to embark on his first socially distanced production block of EastEnders. I'm thrilled to be joined today by David Tucker, who directed both series of A Very Peculiar Practice and the sequel film A Very Polish Practice. Hello, David. Hello. How are you? How's lockdown treating you? Um, okay, uh, I have just embarked um, on a uh, TV directing job, which actually be the first um, in almost a year. Right. Um, I'm uh, directing some of EastEnders, which um, for me over the last uh, seven or eight years has become something I do every now and again and always enjoy. Uh, slightly strange time to be doing it. And yeah. Filming at the moment is has all sorts of difficulties because of coronavirus restrictions. Um, yeah, yeah. So you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot through that experience, I guess. I think it will be an educative experience. Yes. Well, I'm sure it'll be a frustrating one because <laughs> because the, the bottom line is that nobody can be closer than two meters apart, mm. and yet we have to make it look as if people are closer than two meters apart. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's very much in the present. I want to take you a long way back <laughs> to a wonderful, wonderful series that I think well, I'll have run out of superlatives by the time we've got to this stage, really. But um, a very peculiar practice, which first went out in 1986. So can you tell me how you first got involved with the show? Yes, I had worked the previous year for the producer Ken Reddington on uh, a BBC drama that was an adaptation of a book by a writer called R.F. Delderfield um, and it was called Diana 
And it was a sort of uh, love story between poor boy and rich girl. And the scripts were written by Andrew Davis. Summoned to Heronsley House by Diana's father, I began to feel like Jack the Giant Killer that fine May morning. The last time I had met her parents, I had been called a grubby little fortune hunter and threatened with the law. But I was a man now. I was not to be abused and threatened. I had come to take their daughter away from them and there was nothing they could do to stop me. So a year later, I had a phone call from Ken saying that Andrew had written this thing and he didn't really know what to make of it. And, <laughs> and would I like to have a look at it and, and explain it to him and, uh, <laughs> and maybe direct it? Um, uh, so I didn't know what to expect, really. I read the first three scripts and thought, this is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Uh, the way that the series came about, its birth was a slightly a strange affair, really. Um, and, and Andrew uh, has talked about this before and, and happily admits it. It was partially a sort of accident in that he had been contracted by the BBC to write a series about social workers. And he had a go at writing a series about social workers, but um, it didn't work. And he knew it didn't work. And everybody who read it knew it didn't work. The unfortunate thing was he'd already spent the dosh. So he had a debt to the BBC. And uh, rather than pay the money back yeah. or sell one of his daughters, he, um, <laughs> he said, well, I've, I've got this other idea yeah. um, about a medical practice in a university. And then he wrote the first script. I think that most people who read it thought it was funny, maybe had some doubts about how it would work. And that's how it started. What's your track record, old chap? Uh, track record? Absolutely right. Fair's fair, mine first. Classical tale of a promising career gone sour. Shrewsbury, Trinity, Guys, Royal Durham, ICI, Princeton, Spelling Saudi, then fatal mistake, came here. I see. What about you? Birmingham. Birmingham, Birmingham, Walsall. Really? As a sort of grim coherence. Yes. So you see, this is rather a step up for me. Shrewd of you to lose the accent. Couldn't tell, not in a million years. Thank you, Bob. So did you immediately find the premise appealing? I think I found everything about it appealing. Mm. It had a political edge. Yeah. Which certainly was strongly appealing. It had these wonderful characters some of them quite heightened characters yeah so the uh, the series is full of grotesques of one sort or another and just very funny situations and wonderful dialogue i mean andrew who now is the kind of ministry of classical adaptation he, yeah. he almost invariably adapt, adapts other people's work which he's very very good at yeah but A Very Peculiar Practice was a completely original series. Yeah. Um, and it has his voice in it very yeah. strongly. Yeah. Uh, 
So I was I was uh, thrilled from the, the moment I read it, really. And I, I said to Ken Rennington, don't worry, it'll be fine. <laughs> right. So you reassured the producer. OK, yeah. I think I think I, I, think I got it immediately yeah. and, and just got the the tone of it and, and therefore felt very confident about about the tone of it mm. from the start yeah so that's that's how it came about in the first place yeah and was it always that you were going to direct all of that first series because that's quite unusual isn't it because uh, previously you'd like you'd done like half a series of Tenko and you'd done half of Diana etc and mm. yeah was it a surprise or was that because you were so passionate about it why was that I think I think that Ken had always thought that one director would do it, that it would be a difficult series to share because yeah. it had such an individual voice to it. Yeah. Right. So, uh, and it was obviously, it was, it was a very big chunk of work and I was thrilled by that, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's really hard to sort of talk about it in general terms because there's so much in there, but what did you see as its message? What did you think it was saying about humanity or about human nature? Okay, well, it explores lots and lots of dark motives, I think, among various characters. And above all, what sits in the background of the story and of those characters, which is the key to it, really, is the kind of spirit of the 1980s, yeah. um, the, 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 the Thatcher era. Mm. Uh, of rampant individualism and the series opposes against that the kind of positive values of kindness and love yeah. um, which i guess stephen dacre represents yeah we love you yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> yes like we're here yeah um and the idea of a uh, 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 it was a brilliant idea for a series because you know a stock in trade of television drama is the medical series because medical series, we love medical series because there's lots of drama, there are high stakes, sometimes it's life and death, but you can have a cast of, a, a core cast of regular characters whose stories you follow. And then inevitably, as cases come through the door, you have the stories that they bring with them, the, mm. the story of the week. So this was a wonderfully different variation on that, setting it in a university and the patients mostly being either bonkers students or bonkers academics. <laughs> uh, and of course, they're a great subspecies to, to, to study. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. Wonderful. No, it's wonderful. So on a practical note, did you cast all of the regulars with Ken? Yeah. 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 Um, there's always, uh, you know, the, the the execs are always looking over your shoulder. But but Ken and I cast it. I think that when we came up with the idea of Peter Davison, Jonathan Powell, who was then the head of series and serials at the BBC, was very keen on the idea. Right. Peter, I think, had proved himself already as a as an actor who carries with him a very strong sympathy. I think you, he's a very yeah. likeable yeah. character. He has a warmth and a kind of innocence mm. that suits the part a lot. And he's a brilliant comedian, I think. He's able to find the heart of things and make things funny just through 
just through truthfulness. Well, the thing is, I, I get very nervous and tense, and that makes me blunder about a lot, especially when it's important. Um, let me try and say this right. I went for a walk by the lake this afternoon, and it came to me that uh, being life saved by you, I mean, apart from saving my life, was just about the nicest thing that's happened to me for about 10 years. Wow. Thanks very much. Hey, you are tense. You're shaking. I know. Oh, come on, relax. You're doing fine now. Oh, blimey, what have I done to him? <laughs> Nothing, honestly, but I've got to go. Well, what'd you turn into? Nothing, honestly. I've got to find a phone. Oh, damn. Look, uh, how can I see you again? Oh, you'll see me around. Right. So he was obviously the first kind of first plank in the in the casting. Yeah. Um, I think. I think John Bird was my idea. <laughs> oh, really? He's amazing. He's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, David Troughton. Uh, Graham Crowden was a cert from the start. In fact, I think that. Right. I think Andrew had Crowden in mind when he wrote Jock. It's hard to imagine any yeah. other actor playing that. I wondered, was he as eccentric as he comes across in the, in the series, or is that all acting? <laughs> uh, Graham, was, Graham was a really lovely man. He's very tall and a strongly emotional sort of man, really, Graham. And I always thought of Graham's acting as of this like kind of rather wonderful, huge cloud that it was my job to just kind of just compressed just to squeeze okay. it yeah. and focus it yeah um, or you know every actor you work with presents a different sort of challenge yeah, yeah. Uh, Graham could be very extravagant and uh, that suited the part yeah uh, it was just occasionally um, sometimes I had to rein him in a bit or or just focus it a bit more it's a cynical exploitation of the most contemptible kind now now stay the on Joe. I will not stay the on we take these young people from all over the world, half of them don't even speak English. We don't care, do we? We want their money. Shove them into courses they can't even follow. Let them sink or swim, let them suffer. Let them turn their faces to the wall and die quietly inside. Oh, yes, that's fine. We've got their Deutschmarks. We've got their Hong Kong dollars. Difficult times, Jock. They're helping us through the cuts. Helping to pay your salary, Jock. Well, if you'll excuse me, I... And what personal cost? You should have seen the wee lassie that came in this morning like a little broken flower presenting a belly ape poor wee thing and then his shag could see she had a broken heart and you broke it anyway, you and your kind. This university is emotionally bankrupt and you are a vile wee man. Yes, yes, all will look different in the morning. Come on then, Jock, old man. I'll never drink with you again. I think the, the first scene between him and Peter Davison, the mistaken identity scene, yeah, uh, Stephen Dacre first arrives to take up his job, and nobody's expecting him because they think someone else got the job. Yes, <laughs> and, and and Jock McCannon thinks he's a patient. Yeah, um, we're with sexual problems. I think is absolutely genius piece, yeah. just brilliant piece of writing. But both of them play it so well. I must say how much I admired your book, Doctor McCannon, Sexual Anxiety in the Common Cold. Aha! 
Of course, sexual anxiety. So you're experiencing impairment of the old libidinal drive? Of course you are, I guess, at the moment you walk through the door. We Jimmy's played a cruel joke on this young lady, I said to myself, and I'm right, aren't I? We cannot cut the mustard. Look, you think I'm a patient, don't you? Just another human being feeling pain, Stephen. No, I mean, you really think I'm a patient, and I'm not. I'm a doctor. Well, of course you are. This university is full of doctors. No, I'm a real doctor. A medical man, and I've come to work here as a doctor at this university medical centre. That's very interesting, Stephen. Tell me now, what makes you think that? Well, my letter of appointment from the senior academic registrar. You're not one of those stripograms, are you? It isn't my birthday, is it? I'm the new doctor, honestly. Peter Davison has this remarkable ability, uh, and I think I said I was going to a couple of times during the series, remarkable ability to blush right. um, uh, during a scene. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, that's, that's so winning and so convincing when you see him, yeah. see him blood, you really believe it. Yeah. So then, of course, there's um, Barbara Flynn as well. You can't ignore her presence. Incredibly sexual and an ardent feminist, which is a really wonderful contrast sort of thing, because you're, you're not just, you know, there's, there's a danger. You can go into these stereotypes of like ardent spinster feminist, but she's a feminist who's highly sexual, but she doesn't have sex. And that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that she's an interesting sort of contrast to Bob Buzzard um, yeah. because they are both extremely determined, selfish, yeah. um, manipulative, scheming characters. Yes, totally. The difference is that he isn't very good at it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it always comes back to, to bite him on the bum. Yeah. Uh, whereas she is much more effective um, in, her, in her scheming and I think again it was a, just a brilliant piece of writing to conceive of a character who you know wore so strongly the the feminist credentials mm. and yet who deliberately dressed every day in um, uh, a kind of white doctor's outfit uh, which was clearly the only thing she was wearing yes um, yeah uh, and who uses her own sexuality ruthlessly yeah. to uh, to pursue her own ends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what Barbara got, I thought, really brilliantly was a sort of a slight mystery about her, which was always very sort of mysterious. You didn't quite know what she was up to. Yeah. And Stephen Dacre didn't know what she was up to at all. <laughs> Definitely not. First of all, I would outline the kind of care this practice offers to every member of this university. Then... I would invite them to consider the idea that this university, like other phallocentric hierarchies, like this practice itself, is a structure which consciously or unconsciously sets out to oppress women. And it does it very well. Just as fewer women proportionally get firsts or senior academic posts, so more women proportionally get ill. Hmm. More than one reason for that. Yes, of course. But I know you'd agree with me that the central one is that women are a colonised race. So what really struck me watching it in well, now 2021 is that the values and sensibilities of the series seem to me way ahead of their time in the sense that whenever sexism or gender or homophobia comes up, it's immediately knocked down and very wittily. So 
was that a voice you all came to together? Was that Andrew Davies' voice? How and and do you agree? Is another question about its sensibilities. Uh, there was a series called The History Man, which was set in a, in a yeah. university. We did it previously on the podcast. Yeah, right. Yeah. Written by Martin Bradbury, which again I think is quite a sort of sharp and incisive yeah. piece about the mores of the nineteen eighties, and I think that people got it with a very peculiar practice. They got what it was saying. Yeah. And I imagine that it had a very strong supportive following among people like me who read The Guardian. Yes. Um, <laughs> perhaps the Bullingdon Club wasn't quite so keen. I don't know. No, indeed. Um, I mean, we were making it. We were all very conscious that at the heart of it, uh, underneath it, is a degree of anger and pain mm. about what was happening and we we're all, all all up for that I think yeah and I think it's that anger and pain which makes it well made it such a good watch right now given everything that's going on it felt you know a brilliant fit I couldn't quite believe how much um yeah you touched on how you worked with Graham on his performance how yeah. much did you feel that you got the performances out of the actors, how much of it was your role as the director? Because I guess it depends what sort of director you are, because some directors are more interested in shots. Um, and, you know, some are more what actors say, oh, he's an actor-director. How would you describe yourself in that sense? No, I'm, I'm an actor's-director. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not uninterested in shots. I, I like uh, telling stories with pictures. I like that challenge but I'm primarily an actor's director. And I think with this piece, I, I knew that it had to be spot on, that the characters had to be spot on and that the tone of it had to be spot on because it's, it was an ensemble piece, really. Mm. Uh, among those four, so many scenes were those four doctors having their, their meetings. Yeah. You, you really needed to, to, to capture the spirit of that. So I was pretty concerned with the performances in terms of how they played their characters, but also how to orchestrate the scenes. Because I felt that Andrew's script was like a piece of music. Yeah. Uh, you had to get the notes right. Mm. So, you know, I hope I helped with that. Mm. Certainly various stories about me uh, are still going the rounds from a very peculiar practice. <laughs> and, I do remember that one cast member came came at the start and did the read through, and had suddenly, uh, you know, we, we'd, we I think we'd read scenes when we when we met for an interview, but by the time he arrived at the read through, he he was very very keen to make his character sympathetic, and so he'd softened him very considerably, <laughs> and I, I did have a chat with him and say, look, that's not right, right. You, you, you know he's a bit of a bastard really. <laughs> yeah. um, and he's a bit manic it's a high energy part uh, so you know I, I think I had some influence at, at that point mm. and, then, and then the actor grabbed it and yeah it was joyous <laughs> leaving you to guess which actor it was okay <laughs> um, so okay so I must ask you about the wonderful nuns and their function in the narrative tell me <laughs> how you perceive that they're a symptom of, of chaos they they do very un-nun like things they constantly 
occur as sort of anarchic figures. Mm. And the very first scene when Stephen Dacre first arrives at the university in his car and and, and is very confused by all these road signs, yeah. uh, there's one that reads altered priorities ahead. Yeah. And that was a kind of keynote to the whole idea of the piece, really, that this was a crazy world that yeah. he was entering into with altered priorities. Yeah. And one of those altered priorities is nun-like behaviour. This is a place where nuns do not genuflect and walk around modestly this is a place where nuns go fishing and uh, throw, throw dirty chip paper on onto the floor scrabble around in bins their costumes i thought were, were part of the idea of it is that yeah. they, they looked like crows uh, and there was something kind of crow-like yeah about their behavior which was comedic but also quite sinister he used them rather brilliantly in a in a dream sequence yeah, uh, in the first series where yeah. they're kind of sharpening axes ready yes. to yeah. there's quite a lot of dream sequences throughout the whole you know all the series that you had some a chance to be a bit more fantastical in approach i guess mm. Mm. i love that yeah, yeah. I, bet. I love a dream sequence <laughs> it does enable you to, to 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 do something very subjective and to use the camera in a different way in that I'd rather be shooting those dream sequences now because I think you could just visually do them better justice. Mm, of course. It was possible yeah. in 1985 when we shot it. Mm. Um, uh, but I loved the dream sequences. They were great fun, particularly the, the one in the, is it the second episode, I think, where Stephen is giving a speech to the freshers. I love you. That's why I'm here. Absolute balls. Sexual harassment! So how was it to film at Kiel in Birmingham? The, the mixture of Kiel and Birmingham, which may strike some people as odd, you know, why, why use two universities? Well, it was simply because no one else would have us. <laughs> Um, yeah. Andrew wrote a very peculiar practice yeah. about a university that in 1985 would have been called a, a new university. Yeah. There was an expansion of the university system in the sort of late 1960s, early 1970s. Yeah. So East Anglia, Warwick, places like that were what he had in mind. Yes. Andrew, of course, was a lecturer yeah. at Warwick. University. Yes. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, so that's what he had in mind. We would happily have filmed at either of those universities, but they wouldn't have us. No. Because of course they, they feared that it would be very bad PR for them. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah. Fortunately, Birmingham University actually is an old established 19th century yeah. university. It just has modern bits. And because the modern bits were clearly not the whole university, um, they didn't mind. They didn't mind us using parts of, of their university. Yeah. And Keel, well, we're just desperate for the money. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we're happy. I think also uh, it depends who, you know, on the person who makes that decision and um, whoever it was who made the decision at Keel University obviously felt that it actually was a significant piece and mm. that it was a good, good story to tell. Yeah. Um, as for the relative benefits of filming in either, they were both 
good to film in, uh, as I remember it. It's interesting looking at it now uh, as to whether uh, you watching it, did you ever think, oh, which university are we at now? No, I believed it as one place. I believed it as Lowlands. <laughs> and of course, it was uh, only the only the exteriors. Yeah, are, of course. Our location. Yeah. Um, it's This was a series made in the days when it was thought perfectly acceptable shoot scenes multi-camera in studio sets and mix them with yeah. scenes shot on film single camera yeah. um, locations which yeah. no, nobody would do now no. No, no. so i just want to talk about the difference between series one and two or, or ask you about it rather because it feels like it turns a corner it definitely gets darker and there's a new energy as well because of Joanna Kanska coming in as Greta Grotowska. Um, can you tell me about those changes and how you felt about them? Yeah, there's kind of um, a bit of a story to that. I think none of us uh, expected the first series to be the success it was, but right. it, it, it did rapidly become very successful. And of course, you know, the BBC, oh, any broadcaster, likes nothing better than success yeah. and so almost immediately uh, Andrew was asked to write a second series right and this coincided with him making the decision to quit his day job uh, to to stop being a lecturer at okay. work in the yeah. and devote all his time to writing which of course is much much better paid however he almost immediately encountered a problem that writers sometimes get, which is writer's block. He wrote a, a first episode for the second series, which uh, I read and Ken read, and we looked at each other and, and both instantly agreed that it was no good. Okay. Um, that it was simply recycling things that he'd already done in the first series and, and done better. So it was a bit of a problem. Mm. And uh, I, I'm sure that Andrew won't mind me talking about this because he has done himself. So he and I got together one day. He came and uh, stayed for a couple of days at my house, uh, which is then in Chiswick. And I said, well, I think we've got to have some big new element that then becomes the driver through the second series. And and I suggested, uh, I think it was me, I'm pretty sure it was me, how about the Vice-Chancellor is, is John F. Kennedy? <laughs> um, uh, only a corrupt version of, of John F. Kennedy. Well, actually, <laughs> arguably that is the case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was, that was the new idea. Uh, and it sadly meant goodbye to John Bird, who we all love. Yeah, of course. But it needed to have some big... Uh, new element and I think it was that that took us into a an overall arc for the whole series and a, and a resolution to it that was yeah. that was even darker uh, what are those men doing well, just the same as we are Steve breathing God's good air don't worry about them they're two of the good guys they're part of the team so how do you feel about your team Steve can they deliver have they got the right stuff for us? Yes, I think so. With good facilities, I think we can do a first-class job. All I'm saying, if you want any of them taken out, we can facilitate that. Any or all of them. 
We want you to be happy with your team. Yeah, the Prince of Darkness. Yeah, and and, and if the fact that you've got Jock behind the scenes talking about the Prince of Darkness and doing things you don't quite know what he's doing behind the scenes, he's investigating, and it's it's really lovely having Jock going rogue and being more freelance, as it were, and yeah, all of that. Andrew, who, who of course um, uh, did his degree in English and and taught English, knows his Shakespeare, and he leans heavily on Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, uh, when he wrote House of Cards, mm. you know, Richard III is all over it. Yeah. Um, in the second series of A Very Peculiar Practice, Jock is King Lear. He's this yes. kind of dispossessed yeah. monarch. Of course he is. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. Going from um, one or other of the doctors to kind of dump himself on them <laughs> in a thoroughly undesirable way, but still kind of with his own personal mission. Yeah, wonderful. I hadn't twigged, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. The task I have set myself, Stephen, is nothing less than to prove the psychic health of Lowlands University, to bring the dark secrets into the light of day. My investigations will take the form of action research. That is all I choose to say at present. And then you've got an exciting new dynamic in the form of Joanna Kanska as Greta, um, who's quite a contrast to Amanda Hillwood's, um, I can't remember her name, her character's name. Oh, anyway. uh, Lynn, 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 Lynn Turtle. Lynn Turtle, that's it, yes. Hmm. Andrew's brilliant with names. Okay. Lynn, Lynn Turtle. Turtle yes. Dog. yeah. Bob Buzzard. Yes. You know, it's, a, it's such a wonderfully expressive name mm. that, that, that describes the characters kind of thing. Uh, furious, manic, um, yeah. Ross. Yeah. Uh, sorry, the, the question you were asking was? And um, the di different dynamic that Joanna Kanska brought in. Yes, just a very different woman. Uh, Lynn Turtle was a very straightforward, confident, ballsy policewoman. Yes. <laughs> that was a lovely, lovely thing, I think, that, um, uh, that she was a policewoman. She, she worked with the police force. So not your kind of uh, standard academic at all, someone involved in a much more practical yeah. life, but who had obviously an intellectual <clears throat> interest and, and brilliance. Yeah. Um, and her role was to kind of liberate Stephen Dacre, who arrives at the start of the story with all sorts of hang-ups. Yeah, uh, a failed marriage, and who's very, very unconfident uh, in, in any sort of sexual or romantic situation. How do you manage being a doctor in that? Oh, I'm all right with patients. It's just uh, people, female people in particular. And where do you get your cuddles from? Oh, I don't get any cuddles, Lynn. Your wife doesn't cuddle you? My wife doesn't even hit me anymore. She's working on becoming an ex-wife. Ah, oh, that's it then. You've just done a bit of dodgy learning. So the journey with her was was, was one of sort of liberation for him, whereas um, Greta Gotowska was a much more complex and edgy and uncomfortable and challenging person. So yeah. she was the one to, to, to bugger him up, really. Yes. And, uh, Rude, and nasty girl. <laughs> to give him all sorts of give him all sorts of trouble. Yeah. Um, but be worth it because she's sort of magical. Yeah. Um, and it does have her, her heart and her mind in, in the right place. And then your wonderful girlfriend last year who gave you such a wonderful time. 
Yes, she did. Her did the boring, don't want to hear any more about that. I wasn't going to say anything about it. You brought it up. Yes, I know. Greta Grotowska, the human brillopat. Root nasty girl. Bad times from the start, eh? Not really bad times. Very confusing times. I just don't know what you want from me. I don't know either. People, eh? Listen. I like you and you make me feel safe. Will that do for now? I love the episode where her French ex-husband comes. Oh, yes. Comes from, yeah. Night of chaos with yeah. the liberated beagles and the feminists. Yeah. It's a yeah. wonderful episode, I think. Yeah, by the time I was watching that one, I knew I would be interviewing you, and I thought you must have had tremendous fun filming all this, chasing around the campus and all of that. Yeah. Two or three whole night shoots. Yeah. yeah. Thought it must have been, yeah. It wasn't. We couldn't do that at a university. Right. We couldn't because of the Beagles. No university would agree to that. Right. Uh, and it was actually shot. BT had this kind of campus-like area uh-huh. somewhere in Staffordshire, yeah. uh, which had buildings that sort of look as if they might be university mm. buildings. Yeah. So, and it was private, so we, we used that. Pour on, pour on, I will endure. How did you feel about it ending with um, Jock's death and the death of um, Sammy as well, who's kind of his his second by that point, um, the, the, the fall down the steps? And I was really surprised because I'd never seen it before. I didn't realise that there was it was going to end in that way. Oh, I, I, I thought it was a very good choice. I thought, you know, it's an, it's an apocalyptic ending. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and it seemed fitting that that Jock should should go in that way valiantly, yeah, uh, fighting the good fight, yeah, um, and Sammy too, because they are you know become father and son in a way. Yes, totally. Yeah, I, I was responsible. <laughs> I was responsible for Barbara Flynn becoming a nun. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which is a lovely touch. And Andrew had no idea how how to how to end her story. Right. So, so why did she become a nun? It seemed sort of a wonderful kind of flip on her. Yeah. Her feminist masquerade, but also to root her firmly with the other destructive and anarchic forces. Yeah. Um, riding off triumphantly like witches on their broomsticks to their next gig. Yes, absolutely that. Yeah, brilliant. And when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I heard a voice like the sound of thunder saying, On the 27th day, when the temple shall burn, and darkness cover the Pisan swamp, on that day shall the nuns leave the barren lands forever. And that day shall be the day before the last day. So it goes out on a high. I, I really do think it was a high. And I noticed it was an hour rather than 50 minutes. I guess there was so much to put into that last episode. Really? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Um, 
And then you've got four whole years before it comes back. So can you tell a story about it coming back as a very Polish practice for the, the film? We had all become friends, myself and Andrew and Joanna Kanska, the actress who played Greta Grotowska. And this all coincided with the rapidly changing world of the late 1980s and the collapse of of communism, which would eventually culminate in in the Berlin Wall coming down. Yeah. And... I think it was Joanna who said, could we, could we do a film set in Poland? <laughs> Conveniently, uh, and really a little by accident at the time, at the end of the, the series, Stephen Dacre had decided to, to go to Poland, to emigrate to Poland mm. with, with Greta, yeah. because English society had sickened him so much. So... Conveniently, we had these these two characters who were in Poland. And we had a lunch, I think. Yeah, Joanna and Andrew and I had a lunch. And Joanna started telling us about someone from her past who was this really interesting guy who was Lebanese, in fact, but who lived in Poland. Mm. And they were involved together. And who was a wheeler dealer. Mm. Uh, on, on quite a big scale, and who became, in communist Poland, a millionaire. Uh, he was someone, you know, who kind of openly was running a capitalist outfit, yeah. um, but was needed by the, the, the communist hierarchy. So this seemed like a really interesting story, and, and, and Andrew immediately uh, cottoned onto the analogy with other movie plots, Citizen, um, not Citizen Kane, um, The Third Man. Yeah. Um, the, the Harry Lyme figure in The Third Man. Mm. So he began to see the sort of possibility of a story that would involve that character. And then the BBC, astonishingly generous, paid for us. So he pitched, he pitched that idea to the BBC. And on the basis of that, uh, we were allowed to go on a sort of R&D recce to Poland. So Andrew and Joanna and Ken and I went to Poland and uh, went to Warsaw and Krakow and observed at first hand the Polish society, which which was very much in turmoil. Now, this is yeah, the time when people were trying to sell anything, people on the streets with little rugs in front of them with a couple of cans and a pair of trainers just all everyone trying to sell hmm. so it was obviously a fascinating kind of maelstrom melting pot that was going on and that you could write a really interesting drama about the place of a, an english doctor trying to work in poland yeah. while all this was going on we've run out of pethidin we're giving them paracetamol for severe pain helena says it's private enterprise but of it is. You know your much, don't you? Why do you stay in this terrible place? Why do you? I'm Polish. You stupid bastard, I'm Polish. It's my tragic fate and destiny to stay here. And what about you? Do you have to suffer or what? I suppose I must do. I really like it here, America. All the overcrowding, all the shortages, all the squalor. And we're all working so hard, we're all in such a state of desperation, there's no time to feel worried or guilty. You know what this place reminds me of? Also, 
You are crazy. You poor crazy bastard, this is Walsall. No, no, Walsall. It's a place in England. Had my first job there. People get iller in Walsall than anywhere else in the Midlands. I don't know why. So that's how it came about. Yeah. And it kind of has a fascinating parallel with Lowlands in that it's just as madcap, just as strange. Yeah. And yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a disordered world. Yeah. And yeah. you have the kind of the central plank of the story is is the decent man, the nice guy, trying yeah. to trying to do his best. Yeah. And it's a brilliant marriage of all of that, yeah. the social turmoil against a love story, a, a, a struggle for possession of, of the lovely Greta Kutowska. Yeah. He has lots of enemies. Now the police are making trouble. Sounds like a charming character. Yes, as a matter of fact, he is charming and also good and generous and clever and brave. He helped lots of people, not only me. He's not some miserable bastard, sit on his ass and moan about the shortages. He's making things happen. He's giving people hope. Oh, brilliant! So he's a bloody saint now, is he? Greta, you wouldn't really leave us, would you? Uh, and Joanna was uh, on hand, uh, of course, Joanna's bilingual now, so it yeah. uh, was very useful in terms of just making sure that we understood what two Polish people were saying to each other. <laughs> yes. A footnote to a very Polish practice was that Ken Riddington, the producer, who I worked with on Diana, on a very peculiar practice, and then on things after that. Uh, Ken and I had a very long-standing relationship as producer and director, which was a love-hate relationship. <laughs> um, uh, Ken, Ken was sort of old school, really, and um, uh, a very good producer. Hmm. Um, I would have no hesitation in saying that. But he did, uh, he did sometimes get himself in a state, particularly when we were running out of shooting time. He would, he would exhibit uh, degrees of anxiety impossible in another human being um, <laughs> got three minutes right when we did a very polish practice as i said he came on the initial record that we went on but when we arrived for for the shoot we flew into warsaw for the shoot and we were all getting off the plane ken fell over in the middle of the aisle and broke his leg <laughs> wow <laughs> and went straight back went straight back to london um, so, it was, so it was not there to exhibit his massive anxiety um, right. throughout any of the shoot. I must say, it was just about the best working relationship I had with him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you were a lone wolf in Poland. You were, yeah, unfettered. Someone was sent out to deputise, but oh, they had no clue what was going on. So, <laughs> so I, I got more or less left to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great adventure shooting the, the film. Yeah. Poland. It was yeah. great fun. Yeah. And working with the wonderful Alfred Molina. Oh, yes. There's Tadeusz. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Tadeusz. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you found out better Polish than me. So, looking back on a very peculiar practice today, is it something you're proud of? Hugely. Yeah, I bet. Hugely, you know, if if I accomplish nothing else, uh, there, there's that. Um, yeah. Because I think it was, I didn't 
necessarily set out like this, but it became an emblem of the time, I think, uh, something that very much articulates what was going on in English society at that time. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very satisfying it's, on that. And a lot of people still remember it. About a year ago, my daughter, Chloe, who's now a drama commissioner at ITV, uh, sent me an article she'd seen in The Guardian, I think, by a writer called Ashley Farrow, yep. a very successful writer. And it was about a very peculiar practice and how it had inspired him to, to be a writer himself. Yeah. So it's nice that it's remembered like that. Yeah. On the podcast, Martin and I are often complaining that the series that we cover in this in this podcast series didn't receive the acclaim or aren't receiving the acclaim now or the memory now that they did. But a very peculiar practice is different in the sense that, you know, when you have the best dramas ever list, it's very often in there and high up. So it's still very much remembered. The first series got a BAFTA nomination. Yeah. And it coincided with uh, a Dennis Potter drama called The Singing Detective. Yeah. which was a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Yeah. And we all expected, um, me included, uh, the singing detective to get it. Yeah. But it didn't, actually. What got it was, I can't remember the name of it, something with a lighthouse in it. Um, Faye Weldon wrote... Oh, the, Life and Loves of a She-Devil. That's it, yes. Oh, perhaps you've done one on that as no, well. No, I haven't. I just remember it. Yeah, uh, Life and Loves of a She-Devil got, yeah. got gone. Oh, wow, that's bizarre. Okay. The singing yeah. detective should have got it as one yeah. little piece. Of yeah. Oh. And we should come second. I think we did come second, actually. Yeah. You never know that. Anyway, uh, David, it's so wonderful to go back to a very peculiar practice with, with me today. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be thrilled to hear your thoughts on it and your memories. Thanks so much for your time. It's a great pleasure. It's good. It's lovely to spend some time re-experiencing that time in my life, which was a very joyous period. Hey.